by the way, three to five, six years after their really strong PLG product market fit, that's when all of these companies do this goddamn shift to enterprise because they're starting to see those deals finally grow up into something substantial. And they say, hey, how do we do more of that top-down sales? Versus the playbook of actually getting there was by entering into the logo or in people's lives very early on at low complexity with some sort of freemium model. And they're just impatient. They want to shortcut it. And they think that overlaying sales team will do it. So my question would be, we know how to get here through this bottoms up motion. Do we have any reason to believe that we can do top down motion and succeed in the same way? Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Unsolicited Feedback. I'm Brian Balfour, your host and founder and CEO of Reforge. Today, I'm joined by my co-host, Fareed Masavat, and the one and only Elena Verna. Elena was one of the OGs in product-led growth, joining SurveyMonkey early on and growing her career to be SVP of growth. Since then, she's gone on to advise a number of PLG companies, everybody from Miro to Amplitude to MongoDB, and most recently joining Dropbox as the interim head of growth. In today's episode, we tackle two really interesting topics. The first is the surprising shift from Airtable going from their PLG grassroots shifting to the enterprise. Elena breaks down what her strategy might be, the questions that she has around this, some of the signals and steps that she'd be looking at if she was on the executive team there. We then parlay that into a conversation about Slack and their latest product and feature developments. Fareed kind of talks about the time that he spent at Slack and how these new features really start to signal a very different product strategy than when he was there a number of years ago. We hope you enjoy the episode. How is solopreneur life? How many years into it are you now? Because I still remember sitting in some random conference room with you, Sean, and Casey trying to convince you all to go <laughs> solopreneur. Like, I did you it. The one they did it. it. I don't even want the committed. I know you're the only one that committed <laughs> out of them. I, I, uh, yeah, like, uh, I give you credit. I don't remember how long ago that was. So I think that was five years ago. Yeah, it would have had to be 2019, late 2019, probably. Wow. Okay. What conditions do you think have to be true to actually make solopreneur life a reality? Because I worry, I see a lot of folks trying to go after it and I look at their history and I'm like, I don't, I don't know if you've spent enough time practicing like deep enough to be able to add that type of value from the outside. It's hard for me to answer that question because I think it depends a lot on your personal experiences and what made you great in your full-time job in the first place. Because for me, what makes it successful, that doesn't mean it makes other people successful. It's the pattern matching. I love right. recognizing patterns and what works at scale and what doesn't. And that's my superpower. And I lean into it as my solopreneur value uh, to the market. I don't know if I would have ever been able to be where I am if I didn't only get, not only get to a VP level position first, mm -hmm. but then repeated it and saw how right. it's different at different companies. And then even then, even though I went into solopreneurship, I still take operational role to continue growing my leadership and operational expertise via interim mm -hmm. positions. The question is, is that how 
have you acquired enough to sell basically at that point to the market? And how long will you be able to sell it without ongoingly augmenting your mm -hmm. skill set? Oh, so you think there's some kind of fatigue of like... I think there's a fatigue. Mm -hmm. Market is moving so fast. What has worked for me seven, eight years ago, I already modified those frameworks and those opinions based on new patterns that I've seen. Yeah, so I think like one thing you're saying that I think is really important here is that one of the most important ingredients is having had enough experience at a senior enough level across enough different instances to know that you're not just saying, hey, this is what worked for me this one time. Here, you should go do that again. And the second is having a variety of depths of engagement as you get going so that you're continuously adding to that bank. Absolutely. Let me actually rephrase it in slightly different terms. Go for it. Your previous experience, so what you really grew up with, is the core value add that you need to see if market even wants to consume it. Like, why are people looking for you? Why are people trying to hire you? What is it that you have to bring to the table? You need to understand like your core competency that market is valuing. Then you need to figure out, is there a different distribution system for those core competencies besides full-time model? Sometimes there's not. Sometimes those core, those core competencies are unique enough and valued enough and they're in fast moving waters that you can create additional distribution flows for it. Because all I see as a solopreneurship is just a different distribution model for still my same skill set. But then you constantly need to expand your fit in the market. So like your cost product market fit, because if you're static, then market moves on to the next person that comes in with uh, better, uh, better patterns, better history, better logos on their resume. So it's like you need to understand whether you can actually change the distribution system for your value, your personal value in the market, and then how do you continuously expand it and then potentially innovate it. So I started in like product-led growth. To me, PLS is my second horizon. Yeah. Last thing was this idea that Look, there are phases for people where they're most successful, and especially at a really high growth company, at a company that's really working, there's this idea that like you have to hire people who are going to be a fit for the company for four to six years, right? And that they should grow. And if they don't, if they're not a fit, then it's a failure. First of all, you need personal realization of what your superpower is and which stage in that growth journey your best not only impactful, but you're happiest in as well, where you feel like you're doing the best work of your life. It's incredibly hard in the regular full-time role to find a company to fit that phase for yourself. Because companies, like you said, they look for this long-term commitment. And I hate that, like that, that drive for long-term commitment because if it, if it doesn't work, so actually let's talk about what it makes, makes it work. What makes it work if you're extreme generalist? that you're able like a chameleon adapt to a situation and just do whatever it takes. That actually takes away from your personal individuality and what makes like, your differentiation from other people. Because if you're just able to mold into whichever form, then what is your differentiation from the rest of the people, the rest of the market? What is your specialty? So it push, pushes you into general, and then you have to actually grow faster than the company. Because in order to maintain your title, remain your, remain your position, you have to personally grow faster than the company is growing. So if the company is growing at 50% year over year, you have to grow at 75, 100% year over year personally, just to keep up 
in that position because that position takes on so much more impact and so much more value. And then lastly, everybody bullshit and lies on the interview process. Like nobody tells you actual <laughs> problems. Everybody's just, if everything is great, it's rainbows and unicorns and butterflies. We have so much opportunity, sign on the dotted line. And then six months in, they're like, fuck you, you're not performing. And, yeah. and, and guess what? They just let go of you and they just moved on to the next shiny thing that they think is going to solve all of their problems. You're stuck on it on your resume with the failure point that you have to explain for the rest of your professional career. Why did you not work out at that company? It's your fault. Even though you weren't given the right information, transparent information, and you weren't potentially even set up for success in that role in the first place. This happens in growth so many times where like people prematurely hire a growth leader. There's no resources. There's no budget. There is no even like priority on the efforts yet. Oh, you failed as a growth leader. And then what? Like, why would I play that game? Like, it's not fair. It's, it's rigged. It rigs against me. And... I'll redefine the rules of how I'm going to engage with the market instead. Okay, now that we've tapped yeah, into spicy Elena. <laughs> I know. <laughs> we finally have her warmed up for Reed. Yeah, so, yeah we got her warmed up. Okay. I think we're right. going to start to transition. And as part of this transition, on. since we're talking about both uh, PLG and AI topics today, I figured I would start us with something a little fun and a surprise. And I see the look on both of your faces because the last time I did this ended up in a rap about growth daddies, which I know Elena does not approve of. However, <laughs> there is no there is no rap today. In, instead, instead, I have had AI create some trivia questions around the topic of PLG, and so we're gonna oh. play a, we're gonna play a little Elena versus Fareed PLG trivia. You have to remember. I did Let's not. Go. I did not come up with these answers. The AI came up with the answers. So did keep, you verify the, the answers? Nope, no, 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 no. This is the answers are. This correct? is part of the fun and part of the debate. Is that uh, okay? <laughs> is this part of it? Winner. I don't know what the winner gets. Maybe we'll we'll ship off a nice uh, bottle of wine or something. So the game is to figure out what the AI thinks the answer to the AI's own questions are. You, is that you've got to play here? your own okay. strategic game here. I, I, All right. I'm just kind of giving you how these these kind of came up. Okay, so no blurting out the answer. You got to both tell me when you have the answer ready, and then we'll and then we'll reveal the answers. First question is: Which company is often credited with pioneering the product-led growth model? Both of you have your answers. Okay. Three. Facebook. Oh, okay. Interesting. Elena. That's what I think the AI is Elena. Atlassian. Uh, okay. All right. You both, that's what you both think the AI says, but what do you think is the actual right answer in real life? So product-led growth overall or from a B2B perspective? It's, it's a little bit of an underspecified from B2, from, question. From like a B2B perspective, I oh, would say. From a B2B oh, perspective. You're wrong then. You're wrong. Yeah, I know. Now I'm yeah. absolutely wrong. So yeah. pioneered product-led growth for B2B. I actually think... I think Atlassian. That's what I was going to say. I think Atlassian is actually the first one to do it from a B2B growth yeah. perspective. However... AI says the right answer is Slack. For real. <laughs> I, I, wanted, I wanted to say Slack, but it felt really self-serving, so I did it. <laughs> Which is 100% wrong, but I, th I think Atlassian is the right 
answer, right? Like they started. When like, was Atlassian founded? Do you do you, early do you know? early two thousands? Uh, yeah, yeah. I'll challenge it actually with SurveyMonkey. SurveyMonkey was founded in nineteen ninety nine, oh. and arguably that was first truly freemium SaaS model because I don't know any other company pre two thousands that on software had freemium. Maybe Constant Contact, some of these other email companies that sort of predated I, it. I remember I, Constant I Contact like like uh, blanketing like TV ads, even from the, yeah. you know, well, maybe I was like too young at that point. I was in college. So, so I, I was off doing other things besides looking at B2B software. So, uh, but yeah. Yeah. Uh, okay. All right. Zero points for both of you. Second question. Marie, Mar this was your question. I mean, that was like a softball by Brian. Okay. So <laughs> just just to be clear, yeah. if it had, I think, if the part one of the question was, I thought of it as B2B, because I think the okay. Facebook growth team gets a lot no, of- No, for real. No, 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 no. Brian literally, oh, right, right. he we'll said, try again. <laughs> he <Yeah>. literally <laughs> said, try okay. again. All right, this one. But he said, try again. What do you think the right answer is? If he said, try again, what is the AI's yeah, answer? Okay. Maybe I would have gotten a different. All right, <laughs> so I'm going to stop self This one's, Go this ahead, one's multiple choice, a little, a little bit easier, all right? Which of the following is a common challenge faced by companies adopting a PLG model? A, over-reliance on sales teams. B, high customer acquisition costs. C, difficulty in scaling. D, low user engagement. Tell me when you have right. your answers ready. I have my answer. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I have my answer too. <laughs> All right. Elena, you go first this time. It's D, lower user engagement. Okay. Fareed? C, difficulty scaling. Fareed gets a point. He is correct. <laughs> AI says difficulty <laughs> in scaling. <laughs> difficulty in scaling. Yeah. It's, that one was interesting. I, I would have debated between, I would have debated between C and D as well. Kind of knowing yep. the reality of a lot of PLG products. And and how hard it is to like retain retain users. So the the reason I said difficulty scaling is because I think as I think about the challenges that even high scale, high word of mouth PLG products like Slack face is that the fact that you're only activating, monetizing, and engaging a certain percentage means that the amount of acquisition you need to continue growing at like hundred percent, fifty percent, you know, like at venture type scale just grows and grows and grows unless you're making meaningful impacts all the way through. And this and unless you're figuring out the sales side, like the product said, led sales side, et cetera. And so I do think that there are great PLG products that kind of like ceiling out at 10, 12, $20 million in ARR. Well, so that's we'll, why I thought the we'll talk of the the company we'll, will, will the, the AI would think that it's yeah, that. My suspicion is that's driven because of D, which is low user engagement. <laughs> so Elena may be more right, but- We're uh, gonna talk about that in yeah. the air table tip, but I, hold on, I'm gonna give Elena okay. another quick chance here to get a point before we move on. All right, All right so uh, two more <laughs> two more quick questions. Right. I don't get to rebuttal this one, I'm <laughs> so wrong. Two more, okay, two more quick questions. All right, all right. <laughs> In a product-led growth strategy, what is the role of the sales team? Multiple choice here. A, leading the customer journey. B, closing deals with every user. C, facilitating the user journey. D, dictating product development. I don't know where they're getting these. My real, my real answer here. <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll go with that. We'll, yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll talk about real answer here in a second, but I want. 
it's see, it's facilitating. It has to be. Agreed. At best, the Leonard and I are either going to both get zero or both get one. Here, I'm, <laughs> you're I'm the I'm the also you're playing the strategy here because no, if no, you I actually get the right same thing as her, there's, there's no way so to win. Oh, I SAT'd no, this one. No, I SAT'd no, this one, no, Brian. No. Other three are so obviously bad that it has to be this one. Even though you know, even though I think the real answer is none of the above. These are all bad answers. That is that <laughs> yes. Uh, AI chose C as the correct answer. Both of you get a point. But what do you think is the the right answer here and then we'll wrap up with the last trivia question and 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 this the last one is brian gets to decide who the winner is so well <laughs> i the real answer is uh, building on top of self-serve journey mm. to generate more value so you're able to capture higher value okay so it's kind of facilitating i guess it depends on how you define facilitating but it's expanding on top of self-serve value to unlock company level value yeah. Okay. I agree with that. I think the the job of a sales team in a great PLG business is to identify and help unlock value in the highest value customers that may be blocked from further adoption in a normal PLG type way. This is one way. Of okay. Thinking about it. So, Very last question. This is the weirdest one that the AI came up with. So I think Brian gets to determine the winner on this. But if you happen to choose the answer that the AI selected, it's like a million points for life. If product-led growth were a superhero, which superhero would it be? Wait, it's open-ended. It's open-ended. Oh, it's open-ended? Choice. No. Choice. I'm like ready to write the answers. <laughs> it's a multiple okay. choice. choice. I can have it generate multiple choice. <clears throat> no, no, no. You said it's a million points, so you don't get multiple choice doesn't count for that. See, I was a superhero. Farid, are you into comic books? Because otherwise, it's not a fair. Okay, I'm not okay. super into here, it. You're I, probably I will, more I will give you some multiple choice here. Yeah. Okay. Oh, 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 I had an answer. I have an answer. Okay, let he, let Farid go for a million okay. points. It's okay. okay. I'll allow okay. it. My this is a really this is not a very like unique one, but I think it's I think Batman is the correct answer for this because Batman has no true superpowers. Like Batman no. is deep is a is a user of tools. He is a smart thinker. He is scrappy. He gets out there. He figures out what the problems are uh, and uses like, you know, the resources available to try to solve problems and I get it for So that's my answer. Unfortunately, it's wrong. Okay, fine. I'll, I'll, I'll shoot four million too. It's, I'll go with Spider-Man. Not Spider-Man either, but here are the options. <sighs> Superman, who's quote unquote, strong and reliable. Iron Man, who's quote-unquote innovative and user-friendly. C, The Flash, fast and efficient. Or D, Captain America, trustworthy and values-driven. Flash. Okay. Elena, you get to go. Yeah, she said The Flash. Yeah, okay, you chose The Flash. I'll go with Iron Man for the same reason I chose Batman. Fareed wins. Fareed's got it. Fareed is in touch with the AI. Yeah, apparently Iron Man is the superhero of PLG. Okay, and that is our trivia game for today. Just to be clear to anyone listening, the actual expert on PLG is Elena. not me. This trivia game. I don't like this game. I don't like this game one bit. Okay, let me, let me, now that we're nice and warmed up let me introduce this topic we touched on this topic last week with Ravi Mehta but it felt like we couldn't pass up the chance to go much deeper knowing that we were talking with you today Elena 
um, as there's a lot of interesting questions here. And that topic is, of course, Airtable shift from PLG to enterprise. So a brief history here for those who might not know, Airtable is essentially a really user-friendly kind of database on steroids is how I would describe it. Um, the main use case is companies come in, they can build custom apps on top of it. Think like a simple custom CRM, a process management app to like managing a marketing asset pipeline, maybe an inventory tracking app for an e-commerce product or something. And the main sell of it is that almost anybody can come in and build these things rather than needing to be a developer. And that value prop, that value kind of really led them to be one of the PLG darlings, which has been fairly successful for them to this point. You know, they've raised approximately 1.4 billion in venture capital. Um, it was at a post-money valuation of 12 billion in 2021. Um, their last reported ARR, and there's been some Twitter controversy around this, so I'm going directly with what the company quoted in 2021, which was uh, that the CEO said there was just north of 100 million in ARR back in 2021. But a couple of weeks ago in a layoff announcement, the CEO announced a new strategic focus. And here are some of the things that he said. Today, we're announcing a major evolution for Airtable, taking us from our roots as a primarily bottoms up adopted product serving teams at organizations to a company that is focused on bringing connected apps to large enterprises. Enterprise, which makes up the majority of our revenue that I was actually surprised by this, is growing more than 100% year over year and best in class uh, net dollar retention of 170%. And he kind of goes on to talk about how they're making some of these shift and kind of cutting portions of the team to align the organization to this. But I think this came as a pretty big surprise for a lot of folks. They didn't see it coming. And so I'm actually interested, Elena, if you could like put yourself, pretend for a moment you are an exec at Airtable sitting in the room discussing this possible strategy shift. I'm interested, like, what are you, what are you saying? Like, what questions are you bringing up? What's, what's going through your mind? So I'm actually not surprised that majority of the revenue is coming from enterprise. He didn't say that it's enterprise contracts. He just said from enterprise segments. So I appreciate that there might be a lot of customers, paid customers in an enterprise segment that where, where revenue is coming from and where they see really good retention. I've seen it before. Again, I don't know. I don't have any insight into Airtable at all, but I've seen it where I've been at the companies where in a prosumer motion, you are 100% penetrated across Fortune 500, Fortune 1000, Fortune 5000, whatever number you call. So that's uh, um, even though that's happening, that's not necessarily mean that you have very strong enterprise motion. Those two are very different things that I think a lot of companies convolute because they say, if I already have usage in enterprises, that means I can shift my strategy and close those enterprises and grow more in an enterprise top-down way. But to me, the question really comes from is where did those enterprise, where did that enterprise revenue generate? And most of the time it got acquired through either consumer motion or some sort of very low level prosumer motion, or people are switching from companies and they're bringing Airtable into their new enterprise that they've just started a company. So acquisition source is often 99.9% .9 of the time is rooted in that very self-serve product-led, low complexity problem statement that they started using it and then it started just escalating along the lines. Second of all, I would be really interested to see, so 170% in DR, amazing. That, like, that's a fantastic number. But the question is, 
How is that happening? Is that also through like network effects and viral spread inside the business? Or is it actually their sales team is able to come in and bring a lot of value? And is it also the first jump in NDR? So let's say when you go from uh, self-serve to sales-led, or is that an ongoing NDR that you're able to do after you close the initial contract? Basically, what I'm trying to get to is... PLG, like a sales-led, cannot be compared as apples to apples. PLG starts at very low complexity of the problem, very early in customer life cycle of the problem. And then it escalates through just solving my job to be done to now I'm bringing into a team and now I'm working with the team on it. And then all of a sudden it goes all the way to a company level value. And that company level value often takes a year and a half, two, three, five years to materialize after the first PLG acquisition. So you might see some of them finally materializing. And by the way, three to five, six years after their really strong PLG product market fit, that's when all of these companies do this goddamn shift to enterprise because they're starting to see those deals finally grow up into something substantial. And they say, hey, how do we do more of that top-down sales? Versus the playbook of actually getting there was by entering into the logo or in people's lives very early on at low complexity with some sort of freemium model. And they're just impatient. They want to shortcut it. And they think that overlaying sales team will do it. So my question would be, we know how to get here through this bottoms up motion. Do we have any reason to believe that we can do top down motion and succeed in the same way? I will say my impression of this the last time we talked on it was very different than what my impression is now hearing you read the exact words of the CEO from the blog post. This definitely sounds like we're not going to do this PLG bottoms up thing anymore. We're going to sell to enterprises directly top down. And wow, I don't know, Elena, I think what I'm reading between the lines, maybe you didn't say it straightforward is, I think that's a bad decision. Like it, because I think for what Elena said, even layering on top down, go to market, product development, lead generation, success, et cetera, on top of an existing PLG motion where you have qualified leads, people who love your product already using it is really hard to do. I mean, like really hard and it's a whole new thing. And so like this kind of reads like we're giving up on this thing. And I, that, that would stress me out again. My job here is to give takes (laughs) and my take is I get that all the revenue is in the enterprise. That's absolutely true. But to Elena's question, how did you get that? Why is it 170%? Well, because they started small and grow, grow, grow. And then by the time you talk to them with sales, they double it. You get 200% that first year. What's it going to look like in year three, in year four? Uh, And so I, I just, something about this feels off to me. I don't understand the equation, whether it's like a full reboot here or it just they're trying to sell a story to the market that this is actually 100 percent year over year. I I read the announcement a couple of times because I had the same question. I was like, is Twitterverse and all that kind of stuff misinterpreting this message and all that kind of stuff? But he made some pretty clear statements, right? Another statement I pulled out of here was we have looked at each team across the organization and identified areas where we are going to narrow our focus and operate in a more lean fashion, focusing on the enterprise. Um, so it's like, it does read as like, we are cutting bait and, and this is a shift, not, not a, not a like kind of layering on approach. So yeah. 
I was I was a bit surprised by that as I as I dug in as well. I, one of the things I said last time is I think this could work if it's really about go to market and where you spend your time and energy nurturing those product led leads to drive growth and where you're going to put in the time on a on a go to market perspective. I take all that back because this sounds like like a very different thing than what my interpretation of it was before. And you know, for instance, to Elena's point at Slack at IPO one of our core stats was that 97% of our 100K plus enterprise deals started as free product-led growth teams signed up to the product. Something like 65% had a paid, had paid PLG small teams before we engaged them at all with the sales team. Like, the fuel for the enterprise business was the PLG. It wasn't like, oh, SMBs sign up here and enterprises come talk to sales and go top down. That's just like not how these businesses work. And so the idea that you can just like split it and keep all the good stuff and, you know, lose all the bad stuff is sort of, um, I think, naive, honestly. Yeah. But can we also talk about the product? Mm -hmm. Like their product... I see so many spin-up companies on top of Airtable that util that cater to SMBs, freelancers, agencies, yeah. because that's where Airtable has the most traction. What is their enterprise offering? I would appreciate if this announcement came with like a big feature release, big like up leveling of the solution. But usually, the reason that you have sales team is because they're better communicating product value that cannot be discovered via self-serve on the individual team basis. What is that value for Airtable that could not be understood and the individual self-serve bottoms up base? So I wonder if it means that they're just going to be focusing more on product-led sales and he just used enterprise sales more as a traditional word. That would make more sense, but I have allergic reaction to shift it can never be a shift. It always has to be a layering exercise. We already have this working. It's working well. We've innovated on it. We we're now going into optimization zone on PLG, and now we're layering sales component on it. And we really want to create an ownership and enterprise segment. I will be all over that. Go for it. It's evolution of every single company. It's layering additional growth motions on top of your existing ones. That's what everybody has to do. Otherwise, you create an opportunity for competitive disruption of somebody who will come in through that growth motion. So they should be doing sales. By the, like, we're not saying they shouldn't do sales. They should be doing a shit ton of sales right now, efforts and sales-led motion. But to shift away from PLG, to me, it's like biting the hand that feeds you. Can you go a little bit deeper because on that? Because I think what you're describing here, I was going to ask you the question, well, what's the alternative? What's the alternative move here? And I think what you're describing is a layering motion versus a shifting motion. And so I'm interested, like, if you were in there, what would be your first steps towards this, like, towards this layering motion as part of it? So Airtable arguably started as a pure PLG motion. Just sign up, freemium, self-serve, self-serve purchase. No, like, probably very little marketing, although they do have good, I think, educational components to it. But it's pure as PLG. 
that does not survive for too long. Nobody should be in a pure PLG for much longer after product market fit. You should stabilize your loops of what's working for you, and then you should start thinking about layering. The next layer usually comes marketing. Now we have a lot of low intent customers come through. They're not participating and engaging and activating through our product the way that they should because of whatever reason. Now we're gonna layer in marketing to make sure that they're educated, that they know all of the life cycle activities, and we can hook in into additional marketing channels to acquire more users as opposed to relying just on word of mouth or just virality. That's the next step. Third step is now we grew in some of these accounts to the point where we can layer sales team to elevate the value that we can capture out of them. So we can sell the overall company-wide coverage or licensing deals. And uh, self-serve really peaks out at about 10K on a subscription basis. It can be much higher on ad hoc transactional basis, uh, but there's limits to self-serve credit card processing. So then, and also after you start getting over 10K, companies want POs and processes to like approvals and so on. So it helps to have sales team to like put all of the pieces together, deliver it to them and uh, capture that value back. So that's the third step. You start layering in sales, monetizing your existing usage because you already work through all of the levels of complexity of the problem. Ideally, you build an escalator to, uh, to get more people using it inside the product so then you can come in and start selling but at the same time you can't always just do that in the enterprise segment through bottoms up they have restrictions of even entry into the company like disney to me is a perfect example they just don't allow any self-serve tools they don't allow any credit card purchases from their employees of any tooling oh, really? period you cannot enter disney with plg and that's Apple okay too. there's a lot of these companies Right. Yeah, Oracle. and that's okay. And that's and that's totally cool. And when you're ready, when you know what company value you're actually selling, that you've practiced on top of your existing self-serve usage, you can go and take that to an enterprise and start creating demand. But I like look at it as like there's a dem demand generation and then demand capture. Right. And at PLG, you both generate demand self-serve and you capture it self-serve. With PLS, you're still generating demand self-serve, but now you're capturing it with sales. You only changed one aspect of that game. And then when you go to enterprise, you have to generate demand in completely different channels and capture it. So like change one thing in that puzzle first and elevate until you're ready to change both demand generation and demand capture. Because if you're not able to capture demand very effectively on top of your PLG, why would you ever be able to, why would you believe that you have ability to capture it just cold top-down lead in the market? Yeah. So this is where like it's an evolution and layering that has to be there. But same time, if your SMB is working, that's like should be a cash cow for the business, funding all of the early sales efforts. So like it blows my mind when somebody just wants to let go of it or shift away from it. Yes, NDR is not there. Yes, retention is not there. But you also fucking not doing anything to capture that revenue. Like the product literally sells itself. So it's like you have something like automatic yeah. happening here and you're like, no, no, no. I want human touch. Like I want to be relying on human resources and human error and lack of scale. Yeah in order to go here just to chase after that million dollar deal. Not to mention, just to add, a, I agree with that layering 100%. I think the other things that you get from your SMB is proof. And especially for new categories, these a lot of these enterprise 
demand is not just the demand that's being generated because people are using it, PLG and these larger organizations, demand generation, it's the social proof of all these other companies talking about using, yeah. engaging with your product that makes the Apples, Oracles, Workdays, whatever these giant companies are, Disney's, et cetera, be interested in your product. Because they're, the word of mouth, all the things that PLG does for SMB and smaller businesses and mid-market does have a cast-off effect on enterprise, right? There's three things for read, right? Up. Yeah. A, people work, change workplaces they all change the time. jobs, right? Yeah. You, they t learned for you, like they learned about you in SMB, they bring you into their next company in enterprise. Number two, the some of those SMBs will become next enterprises. Like we see hyper growth unicorn stories, like the products within them scale too. And that's the beautiful part, part about investing into the next future enterprises. And then three, you can create actually product selling itself, sustainable business on SMB itself. So, and you have more people to participate in your growth loops and your growth ecosystem yeah. to better the entire, yeah. uh, entire uh, platform altogether. So like there's multi-pronged benefits to that. Yeah. So what do you gain by cutting bait on the product led growth part? Right. Like meaning like we don't do this anymore. It seems like the benefit, like the only benefit I can think of is it takes X employees to do that. And we need a different those employees or some equal amount of spend to lean into enterprise. We can't do both. I buy that, that that's true. But I think that there, it's just like I think that people don't fully realize how much you would, of what you already have, I think is Elena's point, will be lost when you give that away. It's not just like, I'm giving up $80 million of SMB revenue or whatever the number is. Let's say it's 20 million. It's not just that. You're losing all of these second order effects. Well, I guess a different way to reframe that yeah. question is if you were just to, to try to take the other side of it for a second, what would be possible signals you know that you could be seeing that would justify a full-on shift? Okay. One that I can think of is that the layering that Elena's talking about is not the case, that the vast majority of net new enterprise revenue that they have sold has been sold, like top down sold. They ran ABM and they like got at a CIO interested and they engaged with them and sold the giant deal off the bat. And they're like, dude, this is 80% of the enterprise revenue. The, 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 pull through from PLG is tiny and it is costing us hosting, employees, feature requests, bunch of stuff. And it's just like way too much effort. That's the, that's one that I can think of. Um, yeah. I can see also I, if they had, I know they already had PLS, like it's not like they haven't had sales. And if they see that the requests from enterprises are completely different versus what they need to build for SMBs, and it's tearing them apart in terms of not be able to prioritize both. And they need mm -hmm. to pick a one winner and say, this is where we're going all in because this is where our next multi-million dollar contracts are gonna be. So they're not able to build as a platform that they could feature that is for enterprise actually improves everybody's um, experience as a whole. And they just need to pick a persona. Yeah, so one version would be that they're different requests there's maybe another set of things where what the enterprise is asking for is actually in direct opposition to what would make it a strong PLG product. I can't think of examples there, but it, there certainly are times where I'm trying to think about it. Slack, there are certain things like administrative type things 
defaults that they want in terms of security or who can add that actually would be really bad for the PLG, like small business, you know, version, like imagine a world where like an, an enterprise asks that no one should be allowed to be added to this product unless I set them up <laughs> in it. Like that's in direct opposition. Now you like have product complexity in, in creating that. Yeah. But I can't think of examples of that. Didn't Slack kind um, of for Airtable Slack kind know. of solve that? Oh, I have one more. Like they kind of separated yeah, so or bites the thing. So layer four to Elena's model, she talked about like layering on pro sales on top of it is really an investment in product SKUs that are built specifically for the largest enterprises, like really leaning in product development for building. And the job of doing that and making it not at odds with the, the sort of SMB version of the product is really hard. It's really hard because it's not just the product stuff, it's how you operate as a company. Really simple stuff. You can just release a feature to SMBs and announce it and be like, hey, check out this cool thing. Try doing that in the enterprise. Try just like shipping a new feature without telling anyone one day and flipping it on by default to all their end users. Like there's no better way to upset a giant customer than that because they are the support team for the IT teams at the large enterprises tend to be first line support for every single tool they use. So you have to communicate with them. You have to give them opt out options. You have to give them a training plan. You have to help them update all of their internal docs around the thing, et cetera. So it's not just about what do I build and who do I build it for? It's about how you build. And that challenge of how you build is was a long evolution at, at Slack. That's the only example of a company I've worked at that has enterprise. So I don't have the N equals three or four that Elena talked about earlier that like gives you the great pattern matching, but it really does feel like you have to learn a lot about go to market for individual features and how you work internally in order to do this well. So maybe if I were to be devil's advocate, they found that that was too hard doing both things. And so their SMB customers are asking for stuff fast, 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 new, new, new. And their enterprise customers are saying, slow down, be more deliberate, give me more time. And that those two things are impossible to reconcile. Yeah, but I mean, you usually create an enterprise product pod within your product team that is only going to work on those enterprise features both for end user and for admin, for IT buyer, whatever, whoever it is. And then you have a special go-to-market enterprise team that does the slow rolls education with success and support on it. Like I don't see it, like I've seen it work beautifully across the companies, but like it, it can be everybody works on enterprise feature, that's also wrong. It also cannot be everybody works on these self-serve features, that's also wrong. You have to say, some people are going to be working on neutralizing our competitors. Some people are going to be working on innovating against our competitors. Some people are going to be working on providing enterprise functionality that can either neutralize or innovate, but whatever. They're, like you, you have to start segmenting your product efforts against segments too, if you're going to do both motions. I don't know. I just, I feel like it's, it's a, it's a, that type of shift. I've seen it before. It usually lasts for about two to three years until cost of revenue starts to increase so drastically that you have to pivot back or have to figure out how to bring back that magic that Which I don't think is 
I don't think it's possible. Like I, I think the evolution you're talking about, the the escalator you're talking about is possible because you're going from simplicity to adding complexity to serve more uh, different segments of the market. But for all of the reasons that both of you are mentioning, including the cultural one, Farid, if you're starting with complexity, starting with that huge enterprise market, I, I've seen many attempts at trying to say, oh, we're just going to add a PLG motion on. We're going to like turn part of our product free. It doesn't work. <laughs> it, it, it just so, never works going okay. from complexity to simple. That is a way harder motion and, and task. We got a great audience question, Brian. You uh, asked some folks on LinkedIn what kinds of things do we want to talk to with Elena. And I'm sorry because I don't have it up right now. I don't remember who asked this question. But someone specifically asked the question, have you ever seen... There are lots of companies on the escalator going from PLG to a more enterprise motion over time. Can you think of any examples of companies that started top-down enterprise, added PLG later, and were successful? Because I've been asked this question and I can't come up with an example. So I do think Salesforce is doing something of that line. But they're playing not offensive PLG move, they're playing defensive PLG move. They have a freemium, they have a trial, they have self-serve everything for smaller clients to get them through the doors. But let's face it, Salesforce started with very much a top-down enterprise motion. But it's not an offensive move. Yeah, they've, been do, they've been trying to do that for 10 years now. Like when I was at HubSpot, they made multiple acquisitions in the CRM space, the SMB CRM space that that's basically their, just died on the deep. vine. Like they've spent so much acquisition money, billions of dollars trying to do this and it has not, it, I, has not worked. Well, because it's their defensive move, they come up against offensive PLG players and they buy them out. It's their strategy. And by the way, it works just fine. Like it's it's totally yeah. fine. And then they become the default to the only offering that you have because they basically buy in and kill competitors. I would actually say Amplitude is an interesting case, but they did it slightly differently. So they did go top-down enterprise because they went up against Adobe at the beginning. The, remember Omnitrum? Yeah, I found it was like Adobe. Oh, no, all that product, that (laughs) analytics product that that I've never touched in my life, thank God. So, but everybody used to have it ten years ago. That was the that was a default web analytics solution. So they went up market and they matched Adobe with a top down sales motion, but they left freemium the entire time along sideways. They didn't work on it because they actually left it under the premise, which I think is really beautiful, like democratizing. Low, like a lower complexity analytics that it's available for everybody. And it was up to 10 million events. It was really against Google Analytics too that offered very strong freemium solution uh, to combat against that. But it wasn't like a specific PLG bottoms up. It was just, there is a freemium. If you under 10 million events, just go. It's up to you. You're going to have to go figure it out. We're going to focus on this enterprise top um, segment. Now they're going down and now they can see their freemium has 10 years of worth of usage, worth of data, worth of trends, worth of what's working, what's not, because it was also all tagged in their own products. So like they have shit ton of data historically, and now they can use that to go and build something that is actually going to work in offensive way against mixed panel, against GA, against any other incumbent that is coming in. So I do think that if you layer down the foundations for long enough for you to observe what's happening with bottom of the market, you can layer in PLG motion on top of SLG. But if you just like under the gun and like next six months, we need to launch it. 
forget it. Like you, you, your perception and reality gap are so great because you always talking with an enterprise buyer and somebody who's already escalated to that high level of complexity that you don't know what's happening at the very beginning of the journey because you're never in those conversations to begin with. So my, my would be like, yeah, release that sort of freemium trial something and just let it collect data so you can understand what's happening or not. And then you can form your PLG hypothesis. But I think there's companies that always have one offensive motion and it's either product-led motion or sales-led motion. And I've rarely seen companies that can do both offensively in a like, really strong way because your DNA is either with end user or your DNA is with enterprise buyer. And it's it's like hard to balance the two because they're pulling it is hard to of each other, unfortunately. Yeah. Do you, Brian, do you think HubSpot did this successfully? Because like that's the one example when I was asked by a founder uh, for this recently. When I think about the early days of HubSpot, it kind of looks like a PLG company on the box, but really it was just an army of salespeople calling calling inbound. There's an inbound marketing engine, but like it really was sales led in the early days of the marketing. Product, it was sales, right? it was sales and, and marketing led. That did shit. It did, but right? I think the big difference is that there, the focus of the market, even in that sales and marketing led motion, was the mid market. It was not sure. the like full on enterprise. And I think uh, there's a very big the gap or the differences between like S in an SMB and the M in the SMB is very different than the gap between a mid market size company and a, and a massive enterprise. Just the amount of stuff and complexity that I think an enterprise asks for and the fundamentally different go-to-market motion but in addition to that it took years and i mean years like i i like i i don't know how you would define the start in the end but i would probably say six to seven years from start to finish to actually like fully embody some of the product-led motion stuff that i think is more now they have free versions of all of their products and and they've separated that and they did at some point this was after my time they did dabble a tiny bit with going up, you know, to enterprise. And then the story that I've heard from the outside is that they, they, I think, quickly ran into some of the difficulties that we were talking about. And they actually, with the reverse direction, they doubled down on the S and the M. They actually reduced prices of their products and stuff. And they actually saw an inflection in their growth trajectory. And so they've held that line on the mid-market and not crossing it up into the enterprise, even though everybody, every analyst on every single earnings call is asking, you know, when, when you're going up to, into the, or when you're up going to the enterprise, yeah. So then maybe the example that I'd love to hear from the audience or from other people is, maybe there are examples of SMB-focused companies that went to market with sales that were able to layer more PLG models into it because the that's a closer connection than I build for the enterprise. And now I want to like layer on PLG for SMBs or whatever it is, which is probably a much bigger leap. I suspect that there are companies that have been in the business of calling SMBs on the phone, but still have to build a generalized product. So for a product perspective, the product still looks like the kind of thing that could be PLG but maybe they have to layer that in. Um, I've talked to a couple companies that are trying to do that as part of my like conversations around advisory. And I keep looking at it and being like, I'm not sure this is possible. Uh, but yeah. here's the scary. Key. It takes time. Yeah, 100%. Why are enterprise companies don't have that time? Because their sales loops 
run very fast, right? You hire a sales rep, they close, you pay 100K to them, they close 500K worth of deals, you can hire four more. How fast those loops are spinning, at least at the beginning for them, is what they're trying to compare the PLG velocity to. But in PLG, what spins fast is that user maybe acquisition or maybe the engagement that is building, but monetization to get to the same contract takes years, right? So they don't have the patience for it because they evaluate the speed of revenue through a completely different lens. But the fun part about it that most people miss is that you enter into a logo so much sooner. Like with enterprise, you would not be able to, let's say, enter logo till, let's just say 2023. But with PLG, you could have been in the logo since 2015. So that you were baking this entire time, as opposed to waiting for the right moment where enterprise buyer actually is looking to solve a ready problem. Which, by the way, right now in the market, you open yourself up for a possibility of another player coming in earlier in the game. And then you're not even having a seat at the table because there is already a solution that exists. So I think it's the risk that you have to take. Are you willing to sit on it for a while and grow it, so to speak, with the usage and complexity? Or do you want fast money with sales, which is a fair play, but how many times will you be able to get in to get a seat at the table because there's not already another solution that is spreading and already has the vote of all of the end users. And I think in the today's market where so many more companies are PLG focusing compared to let's say 10 years ago, the risk of you not even being able to get into conversation is much greater. A random data point about this is like, even at Reforge in the past year and a half, we've seen a lot more inbound and pull from very large enterprise companies. And when you actually talk to those accounts and you dig back into their origins, a lot of time the origins start with a single person who went through our 2016 or 2017 cohorts, right? Like a long time ago. And, and so just to give you an idea of a, now Briefboard is a very different product than an Airtable or some of these other uh, products we're talking about, but the, the, the bake time is, is like, it's real. And I would kind of just say in addition to this is that the, this layering motion that both of you are talking about is super important because every growth motion has a limit. It has a ceiling, right? And so over time, if you want to keep growing, this like cut bait and shift strategy doesn't equate for me because that growth, whatever you're shifting to also has a ceiling, right? And to Alina's point further, you're going to eventually hit one of those ceilings and you're going to want to like shift back or la or layer on other things. And even the biggest consumer products in the world like Facebook and LinkedIn and stuff, they have layered on so many growth motions over time to get to where they're at from like virality to UGC SEO loops. to like all of this type of stuff that it's, I think it's very similar in B2B is that that layering motion ends up actually being one of, I think the trickiest things for all of the reasons we're talking about. You have to change different variables. There might be cultural elements to it. The bake time to get these things going is incredibly long, like all of these types of things. And so it's the classic layering on the S-curves versus jumping from one S-curve to the other S-curve. Well, it's the classic growth loops, right? You also have to layer growth loops. Each motion introduces a new set of growth yep. loops that you can either connect to macro loop or create a generate. Yeah. I, 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 I appreciate that PLG slows down. Like I, I, like it reaches its capacity, but that still provides you a baseline of prospects that you can upsell. That's the piece that, like, that bugs me the most is that the moment you lose that user love and the moment that you lose that end user focus, like it, 
it, it gives you false hope because you are able to close a few more deals than you did before. But then the root of those deals starts to go down in growth and like in, in, in they become few and far in between. And figuring out enterprise channel from across marketing, across product, across your fit, messaging, right person, positioning, it's just like, it's a, might as well start a new company. <laughs> so is what you're saying, Elena, that um, the biggest challenge for PLG businesses is challenges scaling and that they, they, it's about like growing <laughs> all these things on. Really, really, it's the answer is see, I'm, I'm just messing with you. The I, AI always but, knows more, uh, apparently. The AI always does the answers, you know, can tell the future. But PLG does not have a hard time scaling. You, like, you need to layer in other motions. To me, like the PLG is like what starts to really deteriorate is, your, I don't know, you have like your activations rate sliding. Every single PLG company comes to me saying a three month, six month um, retention rate sucks or monetization is not where it used to be. So like to me, it's the deterioration of your existing experience because A, you haven't overlaid already in other motions, so you don't care about it. That means you actually need to put the pedal to the metal on adjacent use cases and adjacent capabilities really heavily in order to do it. Or like, why haven't you been doing marketing? Why haven't you been doing sales to like to plug in those gaps? So, I mean, yeah, agree to disagree, maybe both at the same time. I <laughs> I, I actually think you're absolutely right. Why do PLG businesses have trouble scaling? One is this is as you grow and the better you are at acquisition, the better you are at word of mouth, the more you grow, the more you have new diversity in your customer base that you need to work against and actually like address in order to not have massive drops in um in user engagement over time. Every single product struggles with this. You know, it's like, at Slack, we have dairy farms and tech startups using our product. Like that is a challenge that is really hard to do well. And what you see is as you acquire more diverse customers, you see all of your user engagement drop. So the two things are, are go hand in hand and they're really, really hard. It's really hard to do well at the top of the market, which is why you layer on sales and enterprise teams and all those sorts of things. But even at the bottom of the market with new segments, new acquisition, international, different types of businesses, et cetera, it's just, it's, it's keeping up with scale. That's the hardest thing I think. And what's the problem behind that of why you have a hard time picking up is because you cannot run multiple prioritizations at the same time. The only reason that you would do a shift is that internally you fail to prioritize multiple personas, multiple segments at the same time. That's the only reason that you would just say, I'm failing across all of them, I need to go against one. And by the way, can a large billion dollar company in billion revenue, not valuation, afford not be able to prioritize multiple segments or multiple personas, multiple channels? No. So to me, this is like anybody who shifts it's admitting that you do not know how to layer in prioritization, that you need one singular focus. And yes, you might shift and succeed in that focus, but that will still run out of steam, like we said, even in that one focus. So it's like it's an underlying disease in the companies that they've hit product market fit in first wave of scale by hyper focusing on their ICP, on their persona, on their segment. But if you can't layer that and you have to shift your strategy to continue growing, it's, it's, it's only pro prolonging the inevitable by a couple of years. 
Yeah. All right. So it was just Dreamforce. I don't know, Elena, you are not blessed with living in the Bay Area anymore, but it was pretty obvious to anyone who was in San Francisco that it was Dreamforce a couple weeks ago. And, you know, now that Slack is part of Salesforce, they did a lot of major product announcements as part of the Dreamforce conference this week. So I'm going to pull something up here to sort of share the main things that they announced this week. And I think some of them are surprises and some of them are, you know, relatively straightforward. So there are four big things that they announced, and I think the order of them is really interesting. The first is they already pre-announced this earlier, but it sounds like it's actually live now, which is a product they're calling Slack Sales Elevate. And Slack Sales Elevate is a deep, like really deep integration with traditional SFDC Salesforce sales tools into Slack to allow sales teams to collaborate, communicate, and even edit Salesforce information inside of Slack. So that's part one. Part two is automating work with the workflow builder. There's always There's been a workflow builder in Slack for a long time that allowed you to create custom you know, workflows that are initiated inside of Slack, but they announced some really meaningful enhancements to this. One is you can now write some code that Slack will host for you to do custom integrations. So it's not just third party, you have to host it somewhere else and it calls out. There are more connectors, there are more things you can do with it. And it announced usage-based pricing around certain types of actions that you take in Slack. They're calling them premium connectors. And if you go over a certain limit of those, you have to pay usage-based pricing for the number of workflows that are getting implemented, which I think is pretty interesting. So that's also out. The next is Slack AI. It's 2023, you can't not have AI stuff, but they're basically doing the things everybody would always, always asks for. Tell me what's happening in my channel since the last time I was here. They're calling those channel recaps. Thread summaries, this thread got out of control. Please tell me what happened, what's the summarization of it? And advanced LLM powered search. So this is sort of in the AI piece and this is not out yet, it's in early beta. And the last is the one I think is actually the most surprising and weird for Slack, which is task management in a feature they're calling Slack lists. So you can actually have lists, Trello type interface, task type interface inside of Slack that you can also obviously, because it's Slack, have threads about, discuss, et cetera. So they're trying to unify task, task management with uh, communication. And this one I thought was really the most surprising one because it really is like a deep product expansion. So those are what Slack has announced. And I think the thing that's the most interesting to me is that it really is starting to feel like Slack is breaking out of being a single product company for the first time in its whole existence. And the reason I wanted to jump on this is because Elena ended the last discussion about how focus can actually be a killer for some of these companies that over-focus and inability to prioritize multiple things is, is that every B2B company either expands segments expands products, <laughs> you know, has multiple work streams at once. And it seems like Slack is for the first time really diving deep on both a horizontal product strategy around lists 
and task management and seeing like they're touching there. And the workflow stuff, trying to do automation, Zapier type work inside of Slack, as well as a vertical strategy around sales with deep integration with the Salesforce product. And both of these are really uncharacteristic for Slack. And the whole time I worked there, it was like, we're a communication tool, use platform to integrate. We are not going to build video conferencing. We are not going to build task management. We are not going to build X, Y, Z. We are the hub. Everybody else connects into that. And it is seeming to me like we are finding the edges of that strategy where Slack is starting to decide, hey, we need to build deep first party versions of these things. You saw it with huddles, with video conferencing. You see it with Canvas and some of the doc stuff they did that they announced the, recently with lists and also with workflow and automation that they're saying, hey, we're gonna build first party versions of this. And maybe there's some ways to put platform and connect third party tools, but that stuff's not gonna work unless we build really great first party stuff around this. And it really is starting to look like a multi-product company with multiple revenue streams. The Slack sales thing costs extra money, $60 per seat per month. It's pretty expensive. The workflow automations are usage-based pricing, not just included in the plans. It's starting to look like they're really trying to expand the product. And, and it's very surprising to me, even as someone who worked there for four years almost. I guess the piece that, first of all, I would say this, I'm getting like these strong vibes from our Zoom conversation from a few weeks ago with Adam Fishman, right? Yeah. Which Zoom has been taking a very similar approach, which is they're launching all of these adjacent products. It's also a combination of all of the things that you just said. They they have their own sales vertical strategy. They've got some like horizontal, like all of these different pieces. And we had a lot of questions. We were kind of critical about, about that Zoom strategy. So I'm interested just from your perspective, as you look at this as like an alumni of Slack and relating yeah. to that conversation we had a few episodes ago, how, how you grade this or evaluate this move. So this is more focused. I think one, it's one announcement a year <laughs> or maybe two. I think the odd man out, the odd feature out is the Slack sales elevate thing. I think that if Slack weren't part of Salesforce, that one may not exist. Like that one feels like, let's just like put that on the side for a second. Here's my theory on the other three. So if you put huddles, which is thinking about light time, video conferencing and light collaboration, Canvas, which is not a full docs product, but a way to sort of integrate some documentation and places to kick off like actions or know what a channel is about, et cetera. You can put these workflow automations in your channel canvas. So you can say like every channel has a button, like file a new ticket that would run an automation and post a thing or make a new lead or file a bug, right? And you put tasks in together and you think about the AI product, I think where they're headed is we need to have richer, more structured collaboration information inside of Slack that's not just casual chats. And that will make us the hub for the AI. Like the AI thing will be a big winner in the market because we know about all the work that's going on in your organization. That's my bet for where they're headed strategy-wise, that these are sort of the building block layers that look a little scattered right now but sort of add up to, I can tell the AI and ask it, what's the status of all my bugs this week? And it'll be able to answer it. 
in one place instead of having to go in each tool and use their each of their LLM thing. That's my guess. That's a wishful thing. I don't I have no idea. I haven't talked to their product people at all about this. I wanted to come into it fresh, but it feels more focused than Zoom. It feels like a bet on AI. And oddly enough, it, AI, magic AI stuff was always the fourth pillar of Slack's grandmaster oh, really? plan. And it feels like it's finally time to do it. And it's kind of going to work. Hmm. Yeah. I was trying to, I was reflecting on our Zoom conversation from a few weeks ago, because I'm, I'm always like trying to play the other side <laughs> to our comments, given that, given that, you know, we only have like partial information. And I think the thing that I reflected, of, you know, you, you mentioned like, when you were there, it was all about we're, we're the hub, like we're the platform, we're going to let a bunch of people plug into us. And then when we talked about Zoom, it seems like they started with that. They had like this whole, they had this whole like marketplace. They started down this like app developer ecosystem strategy, which they've done a total 180 on and started to build everything themselves. And I was trying to think of like, what are the reasons oh, like that you would do that? And you mentioned something in there about like running up into the edges of that strategy. And I think for a product that is not a system of record, so you're not a CRM, you're not an HR system, you're not a ESP, something like that. The amount of value that you can capture in a platform play around you is actually pretty fairly diminished compared to something like Salesforce's like app developer. I can't remember what exactly app exchange or whatever they, they call it. And so I don't know if you would look at similar here, like Zoom is clearly not a system of record. And I think as you know, I was reflecting, I was like, oh, like maybe it does, maybe the path to capturing more value, the only way to capture more value is through building your own like adjacent products. And so once again, I'm getting like similar parallels and similar vibes here to Slack as well. Yeah. I think finally Slack is doing multi-product strategy. I think like that, that was like there three years too late, maybe even five years too late to, in order to make, I mean, they're part of Salesforce, so they don't have that pressure to continue growing either just because they're supported by this mothership of resources. But every product has to go into multi-product strategy. And Slack has, I mean, minus the huddles and maybe a couple of like the changes to how conversations happen it hasn't had any innovation over the last however many years like i don't remember like something that truly wowed me they have features but they're just features maybe add-ons not necessarily like truly change of the experience because i feel like the product is still fairly the same as what i used eight ten nine years ago uh, the first time that i got into slack so first of all finally i hope that they figure it out because I love Slack and they need to get into that multi-product to start diversifying. I think it's interesting of how they're going to monetize those products. Like there is a Microsoft strategy of just include everything in your existing price and then just raise prices in the following years after you reach critical adoption because it was already included in your suite, so to speak, that you've already purchased. Or there is actually treating those products as its own startups and try to create product market fit and monetization model on top of them soon, right from the beginning, from the inception. And they'll be curious of what works for them. I have really, I see really a lot of companies struggle trying to monetize those new products too soon, as opposed to using their existing distribution unfairness in the market, so to speak, to try to just capture usage and then pull the monetization trigger. I think Figma did that really well with FigJam. 
because they just gave it away for free for first six months. And then they pulled monetization on it, which I think was very smart, as opposed to trying to go to market right away and try to monetize it without changing in behavior and usage actually taking place. But you're basically not using your unfair advantage to your advantage in the market. But the last one is about AI. And I think Slack, it's, um, I don't know, AI is, why do I go to Slack? That's where my human interaction right now happens. Mm. You replace too much of it with AI, I lose that ability to connect with people, to hear their thoughts, to actually get human work done. So I appreciate summarization as a feature. I would be very nervous for Slack to pivot to heavy as an AI company. Mm. Because I think just like in any trend, like let's say fast fashion, to fast fashion, there's Etsy, which is homemade, or to a global CPG brand that produces millions of things. It's the, the beekeeper that produces <laughs> their own honey and sells it, um, sells it from home. So there is like to any fashion, there's an anti-trend and to AI, there's going to be an anti-AI human trend. And hmm. I think Slack actually is a very unique position that like, that's where people share their emotions right now. This right. is where like in any remote company, that is where humanity takes place right now. So I would be just very, I would be very yeah. nervous of the Slack not to lose that. Elena, that is such an interesting point. Like for instance, and this is where I think things like the workflow builder, like there's a really great version of it that feels Slack native, which is like workflows that have humans in the loop. Like mm -hmm. not just like click a button and like shit happens, right? Like file an IT ticket, like boring. But like, hey, I need help on this thing. And then that triggers a conversation and we work on it and then you do it. It makes sense for it to be in Slack. And I think sure. like some of the task stuff, like maybe there's some human connection and like actually pulling the conversations about the work and the checklist mm -hmm. of the work together can be valuable. Yeah. But yeah, if it's just system of record, it sort of isn't Slack anymore, right? It's just, it's just a database and it might as well be Airtable or whatever or something else I think is really interesting and I love this I love this like idea of like how do we keep humanity in the product in products even when there's AI in the loop that I don't think anybody's talking about I I as I don't know I that triggered something in my mind that uh, I think is going to be really important because for instance, like almost everything you get out of ChatGPT has like a certain tone to it. Oh, yes. It doesn't you can you know, see that it, tone a mile away. Yeah. My daughter needs... the other day said they don't need to check for cheating with ChatGPT. You can always tell when ChatGPT yeah. writes and writes something. And I was like, oh, that's really interesting. Like even a 15 year old like can immediately spot it. And so I think there's something to that. Like Slack does still feel raw. We talk about our dogs and like, you know, <laughs> things like that, that I think are, are a piece of the puzzle there. It's just like typos and like the, like how you like express yourself in like, like one liner, I don't know. It's just like, it makes, I, I, yeah. I, I, I very much worry. Like anytime I see anybody post, like even on LinkedIn, like a chat GPT comment, I'm like, dude, I could have done it myself. Like, I don't need you to post it Yeah. here. I could have done and received it myself. I have access to chat GPT too, but I want to hear your thoughts and what's unique right. about how your brain is functioning. So I don't know. I, I worry about that. If like, I can just converse through everybody sounding and looking perfect through some sort of AI, it will actually deteriorate the way 
that yeah. we work together and not improve it. And this is what I thought. I have like stand the Huddle's product so much because I think it's such a smart, like, you know, thing because it's Slack native, right? Like Huddle's is awesome because it's not just like, oh, it's a video conferencing tool, right? It feels like native to that type of communication. Like a Slack channel is to a meeting what like a huddle is to a meeting, you know, like, or to a doc that, it, and so it's like, it's casual, it's quick, it's kind of fun. It has all those elements. And so I think there is something to this is like, is Slack sales elevate like a human first product or is it just an interface to the CRM? What are they doing there? How does it fit into your company's life lives on Slack, right? And sorry, Brian, before before you say that, like on the whole task management, like that to me is uh, where is the source of truth now? Now we have this is where on where things are actually happening. Yeah. Like it's terrifying this, this to is, me. Like I don't need any more. This places. is where I'm going. I'm trying to put myself in the in the I we are a customer, we are a user of Slack at Reforge, and I'm trying to think through each of these products and which one we would potentially adopt and why or why not. And so. Like starting with the sales one. So the, the way that I got that, the way that you explained it for Reed is that the whole idea is to pull my prospects into this Slack channel and collaborate with them directly in that channel. Is that, is that correct? No, this is oh. really, so that's what you would think the shared channels are. This is really an interface and collaborate, like it's a way of bringing opportunities into Slack, so you would pull pull it up and you can interact and edit and on mobile. So this might be like, hey, we don't have a good mobile app for, C for a CRM, so we should do it inside of Slack. But where you can actually like edit your opportunities, build some triggers. Okay, that makes like, a bit you know, more sense to me. Hey, so-and-so closed the it, deal, it, et cetera. But yeah, it's okay, not the it, communication. Yeah, it makes That's a bit separate. more sense to me, right? Because like even at Reforge, our pattern is for every large deal, we do tend to spin up a temporary channel internally and right. like converse and collaborate on it internally. That external conversation didn't make sense to me because that assumes that your customers also on Slack and like we know that a huge portion of our customers are not on Slack. So then you would have like conversations, some in Slack, which gets to the whole tasks thing, which is which to the fragmentation I think issue that you're you're talking about, Elena is you know you know a lot of these features i tend we tend not to adopt because unless all of it is happening in one place the value is extremely diminished this also goes with notes it's like all of our notes take place in notion because if we have like a little bit of notes in slack a little bit of notes in google docs a little bit of notes in notion like it's a freaking disaster and i think that's the hardest part of a adoption with those types of with those types of features and so um features or products however you want to divide that line and so i think that fragmentation issue is actually very real with some of these things that they announced yeah. the sales thing and the workflows things makes a little bit more sense to me actually yeah so who is tasks for i think is the big question is it for the very small businesses who just want a single bundled thing so you can imagine there's a lightweight versions of video conferencing, task management, docs, et cetera, all in Slack for the very small business. That was always the opposite of what we wanted to do as a company in the early days, because it was like, we want, Slack is supposed to be a hub of best in class tools. People are picking Notion, Paper, 
or Quip, whatever they want, and they want to be able to integrate it in a Slack. So that's one version Quip, that's, of the story, that's Quip right? is a callback. Hey, it's a lightweight <laughs> version. <laughs> I haven't heard that yes. one in a while. <laughs> so that that's one version of the strategy of who is tasks for. And that one like doesn't feel aligned with where Slack is headed. Like you move up market over time, you know, these other features wanna, seem like not that. So like that workflows. doesn't seem right. Instead of yeah. just conversations, they want to have a say yeah. in the workflows. And so tasks are part of workflows. So if you don't have tasks, you Sales can't do workflows. And if you don't have workflows, everything yeah, is workflows across because SFTC is a workflow. It's additional workflow, additional mm. like uh, but again, SFDC, it's already, it's it's how to maintain data quality in SFDC. And yet there is another source that can introduce additional volume and lack of restrictions of what can be entered. And so like that one can be dangerous. Yep. Any SFDC administrator is probably screaming, saying, hell no, this is not going to be enabled for us. Our, like we work so hard to maintain SFDC quality. And then the whole workflow builder, even Slack AI and summaries, it's, it's a workflow, right? So yeah. I can... Like I can take that and paste it, or I can now move on to the next phase of the project. Yeah. And I think every company wants to be in the workflow solution, but I think that's a really tough one to crack. So because it changes your positioning. Engineer. It takes positioning change. Yeah. And that's, I don't know if Slack is ready to do. Well, oddly enough, one of the funniest things that happened at Slack when we were doing a lot of our early uh, growth work was a lot of our marketing positioning was Slack is the hub for all of your work. And so it's like one place where everything connects in, et cetera. And so we do these like one-on-one -on -one customer research calls and people would sign up and they'd be like, uh, like what they thought they were getting was like a hub for all of their tasks. But what they actually were getting was a messaging app, right? Because, because like, Every, you know, every enterprise software product or every B2B product had the same positioning for a while, which was like, it's where work happens or it's it's the hub for all your stuff or like collaborative source of truth. It's a collaboration hub. And it was like, what does that mean? And so we shift the shift started happening towards it being much more about messaging. So in a lot of ways, this is like pulling back to the original vision of like going from communication to workflow. But you're right. It's still a big jump. Like, how do I convince someone to do that? I think the question is, is like, does Slack actually want to be the place where those workflows happen? Or does Slack is able to aggregate their information of all of the conversations and push it to other places more effectively? Because like, I would appreciate tighter integration, let's say with Asana, that I can tag any conversations that happen across the specific pro uh, problem or, or task or task and be able to view them and like see all of the quite like what's the most questions that people asking about it where's the most confusion where's the like that would be interesting but i still want to see it in asana i don't care to see it in slack because mm -hmm. slack is like across every single platform where conversations are happening like what's going on with sfdc and with amplitude and with like your uh, current release it's a hub of all of the conversations. And I want those conversations being everywhere else too, to easily connect it. Otherwise they're too siloed as opposed to bringing it all to Slack because there's already too much shit happening in Slack. Like I don't want to spend any more time in Slack than I already do. Sorry. <laughs> it was like, it's That's okay. I do think uh, your point though, really that, that experience you had where vision creeps into the message, the customer messaging and like over, over complicates yeah. like where it's actually at is a, is a real thing that 
uh, I think happens in, in quite a few companies. Yeah. I mean, even reading blog posts, I have to like try to figure out like, what is the feature exactly? Like for Slack sales elevator was like, there's all this like language around it. And then you look and you're like, okay, I can see my opportunities inside of Slack and edit the data around them. And I can create notifications around stages changing in SFDC that automatically go to Slack. Now, again, what's so interesting is that every single one of these things they announced with the exception of some of the workflow stuff is something that you used to be able to do with the platform. If you like did a bunch of work to do it and they're pulling that first party. So the last time they announced Slack AI, it was a Slack AI bot, like OpenAI bot that could summarize your channels. And they're like, forget it. We're doing it first party integration now, right? We're like building it into the product. Tasks, like you could get your Asana stuff to send notifications and update and there were buttons, but it relied on Asana doing a bunch of work or Jira doing a bunch of work and you connecting it. And now they're like, hey, we're just going to make that first party. I think that's sort of interesting. And the same for Salesforce. There was a Salesforce integration. It did some of this stuff. You couldn't go into a native UI and like change your opportunity value or stage, but there were buttons and interactions. And they're saying, hey, we can do a much better job if we build this first party into the product. And I think that's a pretty big strategic shift. Like, And so Elena, my curiosity is, is like you said, Slack looks basically the same as it did design-wise it's different, et cetera, but the primary functionality as it did the first time I ever used it. I wonder if this is sort of saying to the world, that's not gonna be true anymore. Yep. Like we are building non-messaging stuff into this product in a deep way, and you should expect it to start to expand in pretty dramatic ways over the next year or two. And, and that's what this sort of feels like, is like an announcement that's like, hey, we're going for it on other stuff for the first time. We're not gonna rely on our third-party ecosystem to do it for us. And I applaud them. And I applaud them for that. I think that's the they need to have that evolution for product, like towards the next horizon. Absolutely. My only question is, is should it become should it be in Slack or should just every conversation that happens in every other product should be powered by Slack? I do wonder though, to your early to where you started for read with this vision of being kind of the the hub across all work and the building blocks towards you know, AI, I, there's a lot of people attacking this from multiple angles, right? Um, I, I've seen like a lot of startups, you've got Dropbox that did a bunch of AI stuff across all of their files. Uh, no, Elena, you can't comment right now since you, since you work with it. But, but I have, you do see a bunch of people attacking this. And I do think it's a question of who actually has that opportunity. I think people basically want to be the AI command and control center. Like that's the vision that people yes. that, that people see and it it's this interesting question of like i think the existing products that actually have that opportunity are very few because it has to be a surface that you are interacting with platform agnostic yeah, well that's the challenge it has to be software yeah, yeah, agnostic. yeah and and so like i'm and there has to be an existing yeah, that's what i mean and, and there's there's yes, very like, I'm trying to think of where, what other product surface areas I might have. Maybe the browser, right. Would be like, what would be like yes. the other, would be like the other place. So, mm -hmm. or is there some new AI product that essentially like supersedes all of these experiences and like aggregates them somehow and is able to build that habit? Yeah. Like, I don't know. I've also gotten, I've seen some companies who have built internal tools around this that um, have done like integrations into their lasting and their customer feedback. And, and, and that's kind yeah. of 
making like the co- the command and control center. So it's interesting to see who will actually, if that actually becomes a reality and who actually wins it, because I think there's a lot of people attacking that, that I actually don't think existing products that don't have the habitual usage or surface area to be the right like vector into that. And I'm not convinced that, yep. you know, because I'm not, I'm not actually convinced anybody has, has that versus a new product that supersedes all of these sur- surface areas. The default answer, if you're like, who's got the presence and the information and the system of record and the habit to build this stuff is gotta be O365 at Microsoft. It's, it's, it's the default answer to every single question. And then the second one is Google, either through G Suite or through the browser. And then everybody else is sort of third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh place, and it's power law from there, I think. But well, did um, you see yeah. Bard? Bard yep. can now search your email to mm-hmm. and come up with answers. So the Google is definitely moving in that direction. Yep. It's just the question is, is can somebody beat Microsoft and Google to the punch? But I think it's gonna be an acquisition story if they do. Yeah. Or it's gonna be like a anti-hero type of moment where it's like, I don't want it to be one of these companies that's now gonna own all <laughs> my information. And I want to go towards more of an independent party, which is, by the way, is a valid like psychological trigger for a lot of people that they don't want, they don't trust like, this one player with everything. Yeah. yeah. That puts Slack in good position, I, I, I think. And the reason I think that is because, one, it it is not one of those two <laughs> in some respects. It doesn't have the trust issues is that the other, one of other the folks have. Only, it doesn't have the trust issues. It is one of the only products that has always on 47 high time on site, constant presence and identity around who you are of both the human. And if they pull off tasks, workflows, Slack sales, all these things, also system of record. So it's not just a system of record. Nobody goes to a database, (laughs) you know, every day, like, like cares about their database. It's got the human piece. It's got the collaboration, et cetera. But I think, at the end of the day, you have to bet on Microsoft. My big question on this, I'm sorry to bring this up in the last second here, but something I've been finding around the pricing of these AI things is um, I think everyone's doing cost plus pricing instead of value-based pricing around this stuff. And I, I really wanted oh, to ask them that about is, this. That's opening a whole I don't new... get why these products, like I think it's the first time in the history of SaaS software that a product has cost money to deliver and so everybody's just pricing it as I take what OpenAI charges me plus a bunch of stuff. And I think that that's going to be real, uh, unless there are dramatic cost reductions, I don't know how you're going to get away with charging. Let's say they come out with Slack AI and charge 40 bucks per user per month or usage-based pricing. That's like OpenAI plus it's valuable and awesome and magical, but is it going to be that valuable versus just asking Elena, Hey, what's the latest experiment on whatever, whatever. I don't know. And this yeah. like, this is the piece of the AI strategies that I'm not sure about. Microsoft is charging more than O365 for the AI stuff, according to a fr- somebody I talked to about this. So it's like, really? So first of all, <laughs> if you're in a small company 
you still have tribal effects and people just communicate. AI does not have as big of a pull. Where it really has a lot of pull is when you have thousands of employees that are running like cats in different directions and you can actually pull it all together. So the market fit here is in the larger categories, I think, in terms of what Slack is trying to do. But then most importantly, it's going to be of whoever is able to absorb that cost into their existing operating cash flow. Yeah. and then bank on efficiency improvement to basically outlast the competition that it's going to have to overcharge in order to have any sort of profitability. Because I think this is going to be a net negative exercise. But again, I just don't see like myself as a, like I'm a solopreneur. I know all of my shit. Like I don't need AI to summarize it for me. Like I'm on top of it. And small companies are the same way. So you're really catering to much larger clients, I think, as a result, which is fine. But uh, it's more of and they have more money to spend too. The problem here is much bigger too, that the perceived value on the solution is much bigger, but it's not mass market. It's more of a, so, so do you equate it to more of like a customer segmentation feature, like SSO, something yeah. like that? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Because I that's my, I guess that's my biggest, is like all of, all of the products right now are kind of releasing what I think are all the, you know, obvious table stakes. AI stuff, like summarization, auto titling, all that kind of stuff. And that feels like sure. it's going to be, that is a commod, almost a commodity already. We're not even like a full year into this. And so I think that would, that's been my biggest question related to pricing is like, are you really going to be able to long-term charge extra for these features given how fast they're becoming table stakes? And so, but that's an interesting viewpoint is that actually th this is more like, a customer segmentation feature similar to all of the enterprise security stuff to get people with higher willingness to pay. Yeah. Let me ask this. What would you be able to charge for these features if they cost nothing to deliver? Like, or marginally zero costs like traditional software? And I'm not sure it's the prices that um, people are Probably charging not. for these products right now. Right. And I think that means that that may be the source of some of the engagement questions. It's our, it's just a really interesting thing. It's like we have lived, it's not just in the zero interest rate, uh, like era we've lived in the like zero marginal cost of distribution and like delivery era. And this is like one of the first times that like the core feature set of products is, is like costs real money to deliver outside of like Uber, Instacart, you know, like delivery costs money, right? And those sorts of real world services. This is the first time a digital product has cost real money to deliver. And just like, is the value equation going to map up, match up with what people care about? Or is there a more law that here way. that's going to drive cost, it down to zero, right? The yeah. costs are going to go down. That's that's inevitable. Sure. The question is, is that uh, how much innovation can actually be built on top of it? Because you're right, existing thinking has been already commoditized and it's yep. not even a year. But um, yeah. I don't know. I... I still think that there's a lot of not too many companies are jumping on. Oh, we didn't even get to that they're, topic. They're we didn't even get to that. And we have to wrap. Yeah. We have to wrap here. So, Elena, thank you so much for uh, joining us on unsolicited feedback. Uh, this was awesome, and uh, thank you again, Elena. Where can people find you on the internet if they want to hear more of your thoughts and the things that you're interested in? For product-led growth, make sure to take Reforge PLG course. It's out for the first time in fall 2023. Me and Kelly Watkins, who worked at Slack and uh, GitHub, um, put it together. Very excited for you to check it out. Otherwise, to find me, it's on Substack, which is elenaverna.substack.com or on LinkedIn. 
yes, Elena is very active, full of great memes on LinkedIn and definitely worth a follow over there. Thanks for joining us today. I'll see you, you soon. All right, everybody. I hope you enjoyed the episode. That was a great conversation with Elena and Fareed. I'd just like to remind you, please leave any five-star reviews on Spotify, Apple, whatever you're listening to. We'd greatly appreciate it. Also, maybe just share this with a friend. Uh, we're having a lot of fun with this podcast, and we'd love to spread it and get uh, additional people listening to the podcast along the way. If you want to learn more about Elena, she has a great Substack where she writes all about PLG. She also has created a couple different courses on Reforge, including a new product-led growth course that is running for its first time this fall. And of course, you can check out all sorts of different artifacts around product-led growth and the topics that we were talking about today at Reforge. We hope you enjoyed the episode. We'll be coming back next week with a really exciting guest, Joff Redfern, who is most recently Chief Product Officer at Atlassian. Thanks, everybody.